You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. We're in Matthew chapter 5, which is the beginning of what is popularly known as the Sermon on the Mount. The context is Jesus has called his disciples. He is fully engaged, beginning his, his earthly ministry. Uh, he's teaching, he's healing, all of that's in full swing. But he's also doing this in-depth personal training with his disciples. And we get to Matthew 5, verse 1, and it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, henceforth known as the Sermon on the Mount, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so this Sermon has forever been linked to the minds of people in my generation with the life of Brian and blessed are the cheesemakers. But this is kind of a strange thing. This doesn't necessarily like just beginning, blessed are the poor for the kingdom of heaven is near. Like, what does it mean to be blessed? That word isn't a term that we use a lot. It's kind of a churchy term. Uh, It's kind of used in the sense of like sometimes it means you're rich. That person's been blessed. But biblically, what did Jesus mean when he said this, this this term blessed? And the original Greek that this book was written in uses the word here makarios. Makarios are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of earth. And makarios means fortunate, blessed, fulfilled, content, whole. It's not really about monetary wealth, or even like God is smiling down at you, therefore you're blessed. It has this other sense. It was used uh, by the Greeks even before the time of Christ, and it was used by the poet Homer, for example, to describe the state of the gods. The gods are makarios. It denotes the transcendent happiness of a life beyond care. Makarios is Filled with joy and purpose and completeness. It is the highest state of elation. Aristotle used it as a leading philosophical term for inner happiness. Just getting a sense for what it is that Jesus means here. We want to be blessed. We want to live a blessed life. But what does that mean? It means a life of wholeness. A life of purpose. A life of fulfillment. So I think it's important that if you sense that your life is not those things, you know, if you feel like you're missing something, it's because you're not Makarios. If you feel like your life is empty, if you feel like your life is lacking purpose, if you feel like you're spiritually stuck in the mud, this is what, this is what Jesus is saying, the way to inner life fulfillment and purpose is centered around these things that I'm talking about here. And we should consider that Jesus' promise that these are the things that give you a full, purposeful, and meaningful life. And it's odd. It's a strange thing because these things don't always fit with what we would consider worldly wisdom or the consensus on how to be happy. It's also important to understand that God wants us to have an exceptional life. 
Christianity and the teachings of Jesus are certainly about eternity. They're about our eternal destination. It's about reconciliation with God. It's being, about being whole and being adopted by God and being put in his family. But it's also about the quality of life and relationships in this life. God wants you not to be a morose, ashen person who just sort of roams the street, you know, with a a downcast uh, affect, but wants you to live a good life. But when we talk about the perspective of God, what we mean is good is still in play. But Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly in this life. He wants you to be full of life, full of purpose, full of meaning, full of assurance, full of love, full of relationships. But that does not necessarily mean always happy. It means purposeful and content. And so this key to the abundant life that he's teaching from in this passage is often the opposite of what the world would think, what we think what's going to make me happy. These things are sometimes called the Beatitudes. That's just Latin for attitude. It's just talking about uh, the things that Jesus is saying are key here to this life of purpose and this life of fulfillment. It's not always intuitive that God actually challenges the conventional wisdom of humanity with some, what seems to us to be backward thinking. And so he starts here and he says, Makarios are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? That doesn't sound like a good thing. Well, again, we go to the Greek, this word poor, which is takos, means destitute. It means bereft. It means uh, completely and totally empty. He's saying impoverished spirits. People with impoverished spirits will inherit the earth. And what he's saying here is that a Makarios life begins with admitting and understanding that we have and we are in spiritual poverty. We are not what we were created to be. We are not the vibrant beings apart from God that he designed us to be because he designed us to be connected with him. The Bible makes it very clear that humans are very strange creatures. You have the animal world, all the critters and dogs and cats and all of those things, and you have the spiritual world, God and angels and those things. And then you have this weird hybrid of fleshly bodies created in the image of God, imbued with spirit, which is man. And so we are both physical and spiritual, but because of the events of the first chapters of Genesis, known as the fall of man, we were born full of life and full of spirit, but God told Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of knowledge in the garden. He said, if you do, you will surely die, and what he meant was spiritual death. And when our ancestors rebelled against God. They died spiritually. They were broken. And being descended from them, we are all broken, according to the Bible. We're wonderfully made. We are still resembling 
some of the image of the creator of the universe in a unique and powerfully, powerful way, but that we are marred, we're broken, and we're spiritually impoverished at birth. And what Jesus is saying and what Jesus would often say to many of his followers is, this is something that we have to come to terms with and understand in order for us to begin to have a relationship with God. When Jesus was talking with the Pharisee, Nicodemus, who was known as the teacher of Israel, the rabbi of rabbis, he said to him, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, born again is a term, love it or hate it. This is where that term comes from in the Bible. Jesus saying, you've been born physically, but you need to be born spiritually, that we're not born spiritually healthy. We're not born with the spirit that God has intended for us. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so an important key to a Makarios life is understanding that there's something wrong with us, that we are not whole, we are not full, we are not what God designed us to be. We are born under the curse of the tree, but that we can be born spiritually in an act of faith. Jesus said, all those who believe in him will become his brothers and be reconciled unto God. And so a fulfilled life begins with the recognition that there's something wrong with us in our spirit and that we need to be reconciled to God and given new spiritual life. That's the beginning of a fulfilling journey with him. He says in verse 4, Macarius are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, there's sort of this backwards, upside-down wisdom, mourning. But what he's saying is, is we need to allow ourselves to be moved by the great need among us. You know, we are so in love with comfort. We're so in love with the exclusion of pain that we live in a world filled with suffering and we spend a great deal of our time avoiding it. And Jesus is saying we need to refuse to harden our hearts to suffering and to injustice around us. Jesus, when he looked out on the multitudes during his day in Jerusalem, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stone those who were sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under the wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. That when you begin to develop and understand God's perspective on the world, what you're seeing is a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and a lot of need. When you have that new life and that new spiritual life that comes with putting your faith in Jesus Christ, you begin to see answers to problems that you have always wondered, how can we solve? You begin to see the value of things differently, that it's less about things and it's less about power and it's more about love and it's about relationships. You begin walking around like you feel like you've experienced the cure 
to the human condition, and yet it's very difficult to convince others that this is what they need while you watch them suffer. And Jesus says, becoming aware of that, adopting that perspective, seeing your fellow man through that lens is incredibly important. We can take some of the greatest challenges, some of the greatest societal ills that we're likely to face. Poverty. You know, it's funny. We spend so much time arguing about how to solve poverty. We have hunger and shelter and clothing issues, not just around the world, but in our own city. And people will argue politics, and they'll say things like, well, we need social programs, and no, the church needs to do it, or no, we need personal responsibility, and no, we need competition. And those are good conversations to have. We should think about how to solve those problems. But can we come together for a moment and just recognize that it exists and that it is painful Sometimes we get so caught up in the arguments about how to solve the problems, we become hard-hearted toward the problems themselves. It can be boiled down to as simply as seeing that homeless person and being like, oh, I should help them, and then being like, yeah, but they're probably on drugs, and if I give them something, they'll probably just buy drugs. Now, on the one hand, that's not an unwise process to work through. On the other hand, are we moved by the fact that that person is suffering, whether it's a cause of their own personal choices, of an addiction, of whatever, a psychological illness, whatever that is, can we allow ourselves to still feel concern and care for people who are created in the image of God and still suffering? Abortion, again, we can fight about how to solve these problems. And there's so much time and there's so much energy that gets put into this. But can we allow ourselves to mourn over the fact that life is being ended? Can we allow ourselves to mourn for women who are in desperate situations that are making decisions that will not only scar them physically but emotionally for the rest of their lives? And they're making these decisions often without understanding the full consequence of what those decisions would mean. Can we stop fighting and stop arguing long enough to just come to the basic agreement that there is pain and suffering that is being caused and have compassion for those who are the victims of these kinds of decisions? Racism has been this huge hot topic and what everyone's fighting about is, is it systemic or is it not systemic? We're fighting about racism and and having an argument of, well, it's somewhere, in some places there's a little bit, but other people are saying there's a lot. And we're fighting over that. Can we stop for a moment and agree that hate is wrong? That some people are experiencing incredible hardship, incredible pain as the result of ignorant hatred. Is it widespread? Is it everywhere? Is it localized? Are we improving? Are we not improving? Those are important questions. But can we be united in the precept that this is evil? And can we allow the fact 
that this hardship is being experienced by some or many to move us to compassion for that experience and to want to pray and want to see things change for those people. We're being so polarized into these camps on how to solve these problems, we're losing our heart for the fact that there is pain and suffering caused by these issues. Sexual identity is no different. People will come down on all kinds of different places on the spectrum about, you know, what rights should people have? What should consenting adults be able to do? What is a man? What is a woman? But the heart of the issue is that our culture is desperately confused. That people are taking their identity from I am heterosexual, I am homosexual, I am pansexual, whatever it is that I am, and they're thinking that that is the sum, that is the most important factor of who I am. When all of us, every single one of us, are so much more than the sum of our parts. Can we just stop for a moment and mourn for the confusion and the pain and have compassion for the people that are living in the midst of that confusion? I heard a story just recently about a public school, an elementary school, where they were asking six-year-olds what their preferred pronouns were. Now, I think we should have compassion there. One, we should be concerned that we're pressing these very adult issues and questions into the minds of children, but we can also have compassion for the teachers who are trying to help the kids. And they're thinking they're not pressing some political agenda in order to harm children. They're trying to help. And we should open our minds and open our hearts to the tragic confusion that's connected to all of these different issues. Yes, we may not agree on how to solve them, but let's not use the resolution as a means and a fulcrum to harden our hearts against the actual pain that is being caused by this and a host of other issues. And you're saying, letting myself be hurt by that is the key to a blessed life? Yes. It is because the alternative is hardness of heart. A real awareness of the injustices, of the pains, of the problems, of the ills of our society can move you to compassion, which is the key to joy. Hardness of heart will only leave you broken and alone. Jesus said, Makarios are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. That word, gentle, is sometimes translated meek, which is one of my least favorite words in the English language. Meek. It's just even saying it drives me crazy, just thinking about who wants to be meek. I really wrestled with this. Jesus is saying, blessed are the meek. And it's just like, oh, that's just weakness. That's, that's softness. That's spineless. And you've got lammy Jesus. You know, and that just whole picture of, oh, just be like that. I find that very disturbing and off-putting. 
And you know, when you think about it, Jesus, it is said, was meek and mild, but what does that mean? When you look at the life of Christ, the way that he lived, what he did, you know, is that described? Is that a picture of this sort of absolutely just plain, spineless mush of a person? Absolutely not. That word in the Greek is a very interesting word. It's often translated gentle or humble, but it's really a combination of humility and self-control. That word, what it really means is immense power kept in restraint. The etymology of the word is quite fascinating. If you study how it was used throughout history in ancient Greek, what you learn is that the word is the original word for war horse. And you're like, Ryan, you're just making that up because you like the idea of being a war horse, then you like being meek. It's not true. You see, in the ancient world, a war horse was the ultimate example of meekness because it had immense power. You know, they didn't have tanks. They didn't have monster, tr monster trucks. They had horses that had been bred for battle that were these incredibly fast, incredibly agile, incredibly powerful animals. And then you put armor on them and they're virtually unstoppable by a man except for the person riding it. The tiny little piddly man compared to the horse, who the horse could stomp out in a whim, had full control over the horse because the horse was meek. It had great power, but that power was under control and restrained according to the wills of the rider. That is what meek means. There's no greater picture of meekness than the all-powerful creator God of the universe allowing us to nail him to a cross and torture him so that he could take the sins of the world upon himself. That is meek. This is the Alpha and the Omega who spoke the universe into being, who said, let there be light, and there was light. And as they drove the nails into his arms, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He could have done Thanos, and we would all have been gone. Power in restraint for a greater purpose. That's what Jesus is talking about here when he says, be gentle. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. This thirst for righteousness is very much connected to this sense of mourning. That as you understand and you recognize and you mourn regarding the state and the lostness of mankind, that you will begin to long for things to be set right. You see, all of these things are about adopting a perspective that God himself has about the human condition. God mourns over the injustice and the evil of man. God is meek. We need to recognize the perspective that God has about the universe and rejoice in the fact that God is going to set it right. That all of these pains, all of these ills, all of this suffering 
is going to be rectified by the power of God. In Matthew 6.10, Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer. And, you know, this might seem strange. If you really think about it, why would we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? I remember as a young man reading this and being like, you can come, but wait a few years till after I've been married. You know, wanting Jesus to come back, but wanting to live a little life first and wanting to, to grow and experience things before the end came. But this is a demonstration of what he's talking about where we're thirsting for justice. We're thirsting for things to be put right. We're longing for and praying for God to bring justice and to stop the pain and the suffering. We're talking about the end of all evil, the end of pain, the end of loneliness. And he's saying, if you long for these things, you will be satisfied because God keeps his promises. And it's not just about being mourning or being remorseful. It's about longing for change, that as we look out into the world and we see the lostness, we see the pain, we see the confusion, that we long to do something, to be a part of an answer, to be a part of God's plan, to change things, to set things right, and to restore the beating heart and the love of God and the love of our fellow man. These concepts are diametrically opposed to the wisdom of the world. Worldly wisdom says believe in yourself. That you can't love others until you learn to love yourself and be confident and be strong and have some faith in yourself. Jesus is saying, no, the key to, an to a, a good life is to understand how weak you are. To come to a place of surrender where you recognize your need for God. The world says you can't get caught up in other suffering. You can't just let the whole world impact you. You have to protect yourself. You're just a drop of water in, in the bucket of the ocean. What difference can one person make? You have to wall yourself off and harden your heart to that suffering if you're going to survive in a difficult world. Jesus says, be grieved and broken over the state of our culture, the heart of our fellow man. Allow yourself to be impacted by what's wrong so that you can be moved to do something about it. Our culture says, demonstrate your strength. Protect what's yours. Defend your own. Don't let people take advantage of you. Jesus says, depend on God's strength. Trust in him. Take all your strength and put it to submission to his purposes and you will find Macarius. The world says, accept that there are just things that you cannot change. That things will always be broken. There will always be evil. There will always be suffering. And the best that you can do is bunker yourself off and to build your walls high to keep the evil and the pain and the suffering out. Jesus says, long for the time when God will set things right. Be encouraged and know that this injustice and this pain and this suffering 
will not go on forever. God will bring it to an end. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. Jesus is laying out here deep wisdom about the reality of the way the world actually is, the design, the architect plan for how God created your heart, and the, the method through which God will fill that heart with purpose and joy and meaning. And it turns out it's the exact opposite of what everybody thinks. It's not our picture of a good life, a good person. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus' challenge to us is this. How is worldly wisdom working out for you? If you're one of those people like many of us who's like, I want to be tough, I want to be strong, I want to defend what's mine, I want to believe in myself, how's that working out for you? Because what most of us here have found is that those things led to more pain and more suffering and more emptiness, even when we succeeded at them. Even when we were viewed as a success in the eyes of the world, we were not Makarios. We were empty and hungry and thirsting for something that just never seemed to satisfy and to fulfill us. If you want to think about it even more, think about how's worldly wisdom working out for the world? Is the world becoming a better place? Are we slowly uniting and growing toward a united federation of planets where we're going to go boldly where no one has gone before? Or are we hurtling toward our doom, a self-imposed self-destruction and a fiery ball of man's inhumanity to man. The path we're on is not leading us toward Macarius because our wisdom is deceived. There needs to be dramatic change. And that dramatic change begins with us letting the wisdom of God seep deeply into our bones surrendering ourselves to him and to his power and putting into practices the teachings of Jesus Christ will change your life, will change your relationships, and will begin to change the lives of the people around you. This is why when Jesus had this moment, he took that moment to sit down with his disciples and tell them about the deep wisdom of God. And that's the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. Why don't we pray? Yeah, God, we just ask that you will teach us how to mourn, teach us how to have a realistic perspective of our own weakness, teach us the importance of yearning for justice, and show us how to navigate those things and the complexities of all the things that we see, all the calamity and all the confusion that we see before us. 
Help us to navigate those things in a way that keeps our hearts soft and pliable, that keeps our minds teachable, but also engages us with seeing real change. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.